are privileged to have two discussants with us who will share their perspectives. Our first discussant is Ruth Vargas-Hill. She is a lead economist in the Poverty and Equity Global Practice at the World Bank. Ruth, we look forward to your remarks. Thank you very much for inviting me to comment on this work. It's a real privilege to be back at IFPRI, albeit in a new building, um, but to see also some familiar faces uh, in the audience. And also thank you for asking me to comment on this work because I believe this is really crucially important work. Um, it's high quality research um, in difficult circumstances on some of the most vulnerable people in the world. And the work sheds light on the well-being of this vulnerable group of people, and it also brings evidence to some policy questions that, in the absence of evidence, are usually driven on the basis of assumptions um, which may or may be closer or further from the truth, um, and often quite far from the truth. I think as I was reading the material that was sent to me in advance of, of this seminar, I was reading the, the policy brief, um, which I really recommend to all of you to read. And the phrase from that um, brief that stuck out to me was surviving but not thriving. And I think the presentations today have sort of really shown that. Yes, people are surviving. Um, and there's something to celebrate here. That was definitely not an automatic outcome of this situation. Um, there's some, the hospitality of Bangladesh and the effectiveness of the humanitarian response should be celebrated. Um, but it also points to, the work also points to the challenge of sustainability, and I wanted to make two sets of comments around this. Um, one on what has been happening over time in order to ensure this survival. How sustainable is that? And second, um, how can the analysis contribute a little bit more to an understanding of what's needed to ensure thriving, to try and change the, the, the direction of the dialogue? Um, I think it's very nice that this survey has been conducted with WFP and in a way that allows it to be compared to some of the data that was collected in the immediate aftermath of the, the latest influx. Um, and it was interesting for me to see how nutrition outcomes had progressed over time. And I'd love to see more comparisons over time on other aspects in the survey that I'm guessing are both in the initial survey and in yours. A small subscript here, and perhaps to follow up afterwards, I'd be really interested to, to know how comparable these two surveys are and to sort of convince myself by seeing that things such as demographics, things we expect not to change over time are a constant between the two surveys. But that's a small point. Um, and the results made sense to me. We had, uh, with WFP um, in the World Bank, we had conducted a follow-up survey to Riva One where we had phone called some of the respondents in the survey that had phone numbers. It's not a representative sample, but that also showed improvements in food security. So this finding of, of food security improving over time make, makes sense. It'd be interesting if you could pursue the analysis further to understand what, to what extent is this household recovering from the shock of the journey versus um, conditions in camps improving, and you do also show some, some aspects of conditions in camps improving. But I think the point I wanted to make here is that what's something that we saw from this survey that we had, this phone call survey that we had done, is that although outcomes are improving, um, and this is something that it was in the brief, I think, or in some earlier slides, but not presented, people are feeling worse off. They report feeling less well now than they did a year ago. Um, and I think it would be good to understand, well, how is it that households are ensuring their food security? We know that food aid's been crucially important, but we know that it's not enough. 
you show that it's not enough. Um, and we found um, that households were, were using more um, costly coping strategies over time to ensure their food security. They were depleting more assets. Um, they were at, so they were basically surviving, but making their future survival also less likely. Um, this means that even if humanitarian aid were sustained, if there were no donor fatigue, and so the continued improvements in food security would not, not be seen, and I think making this point is an important one. Um, I had some comments around the labor market participation work, but in the interest of time, I'll, I'll, I'll skip those and just get to my last point on sort of, well, how do we go from surviving to thriving? And this is not, a, a, as Paul noted, this is not a conversation that's unique to Bangladesh. I mean, the scale and intensity of the, of the migration from Myanmar into Bangladesh is, I mean, this was, this was a, the size of, of Washington, D.C. moving into our camp within the space of three to four months. That's the scale that we're talking about. But globally, migrants are 3% of the world population, and yet they contribute 9% of its GDP. Yet so often our conversation is about migrants taking our jobs. Um, and this, is, this was some of the, the tenor of, of the analysis a little bit here as well. So if migrants start working, will they take our jobs? Um, but how can we, how can we um, understand what it would take for the Rohingya to contribute to create economic opportunities for Bangladeshis through the increased demand that they bring to not only be workers but also to be self-employed and maybe even hiring others? Um, and can, can I'd be very interested in more details about the model simulations. How can we understand, um, you know, what, what is it that, that would need to change um, for this to be the case? And can we say a little bit more um, other than cash transfers or capital investments? Can we understand what are the constraints to this happening? Thank you.